This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week on Cultivating Place, we're joined by Sarah Burr, the ultimate fruit forager and chef. Of all the things you can forage for, I forage for fruit, and it's because it's sweet and delicious and sexy and tactile and and fertile. There's just something about it that's really has a deeper story than greens or mushrooms, at least at least to me. Mm-hmm. I, I think fruit is a currency of memory. We'll be right back. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As we settle into the possibility of a new year, people have resolutions, hopes and goals of all kinds. For chef, writer, and forager Sarah Burr, the various branches of her life come together to help her live into her life values, even accepting some of the incongruencies. Her new book, The Fruit Forager's Companion, Ferments, Desserts, Main Dishes, and More from Your Neighborhood and Beyond, walks us through her foraging practice, how she sees the world, and how to make the most, edibly and philosophically, of where you are right now. Welcome, Sarah. Jennifer, it's great to be talking to you today. I've been really enjoying your book. I've been enjoying all the sort of sidebars in the introduction and the recipes. I'm probably more of a of a of a gardener than a cook, but you have some wonderful and descriptive elements to this book that makes me want to give it a try. Tell listeners if you would, Sarah, about your current kind of nature garden foraging practice and and what it looks like right now in your life? Sure. Um, What it looks like right now in my life is actually resting because I've been a bit under the weather and that's hard for me. I work things out by physically moving through space and having that stimulation sort of massage different things I have going on in my head. So so without that activity, it's been a little bit difficult for me, but it's wintertime now and, and it's always a good respite in general. So that's a good reminder for me. It's it's fine to chill out. But typically I I go on many walks every day, just like a lot of us do, just to get from here to there. And sometimes they're more intentional just so I can look around. So I have a great walking neighborhood and I walk my dog around the neighborhood. I walk my daughter to her elementary school. And then I walk on trails that are probably about 10 minutes from my house. And as I'm walking around on those, I look at the different plants and notice what they happen to be up to. And that's 
that's my that's my foraging practice right there. Right. And you're also you're a, you're a chef and a food librarian. What do those look like in your life? Do you do them full time? What is a food librarian? That's a fantastic question. That's a term I came up with to describe what I do, which is quite a few things. But generally what I do is I connect people with the information that they need to to be better cooks and enjoy food more and be healthy and engaged with food in their lives. So I develop recipes. Um, I'm a writer. I teach cooking classes. And I used to work in libraries, and that's something mm. I, I miss quite a bit. So I just look at my, my current job as a way to um, extend that library yeah. <laughs> aspect of me in, into, into my, my current career. Um, so, so I do a lot of things, but the way the forging works into that is I'm always looking for, for new flavors. And it turns out that a lot of the ones available to us are surround us in our everyday lives. We just don't think of them as anything that we can eat because we haven't been eating them. Mm. Give us an example of that. So where I live here in Appalachia, there is a shrub called spice bush. Sometimes people plant this for landscaping, but it also grows out in the woods and has these little oval red berries. They look a little bit like holly berries, and they start to ripen in the late fall. And you can pick those and use them as a spice. They they shrivel up and they look kind of like big funny peppercorns and they don't taste like like much of um anything that we're familiar with so i had to really rethink what spices were and mm. what flavors were and even though it doesn't come from uh conifer it has a really piney juniper like taste so i started using them where i'd use juniper berries like if i'm cooking a batch of sauerkraut or if I'm curing meat, um, I made a turkey confit for Thanksgiving and I used allspice berries, in, not allspice, spice bush berries in that. And I also recently ground some and added it to uh, a furikake blend, which is a Japanese seasoning and tasted really good in there. So it's a good way to flex my brain and kind of reach beyond assumptions of what things are and what they taste like. And that's, that's really what, um, one of the other things I love about foraging. It just, it just challenges your assumptions. And I think that's, that's good for all of us. Right. And you really get into this in, uh, in the introduction to the book specifically, and then through narrative through, throughout the book, uh, which is part philosophy, part cookbook. And we definitely will get into that. First of all, I want to go back to the spice bush. We in California have a a bush also called spice bush, which is calicanthus. I don't think this that you're describing is from the calicanthus genus. What is the Latin name of that spice bush you have there in southeastern Ohio? Ah, it's Lindera benzoin. And the funny thing is my pronunciation might be off because a lot of these scientific names I've read many, many times, but I just never speak them out loud. And it has little yellow flowers in the spring, and the leaves turn kind of a yellowish gold in, in the fall. Um, mm. But it's definitely a 
a plant more of the eastern United States. And is that native there or, or was it introduced at some point? Do you know that? It is a native plant, and the story is that when people moved this area, and specifically to Appalachia, they didn't have access to some of the familiar spices, and I'm talking about warming spices like cinnamon and cloves. Um, They didn't have access to those, so they would use spice bush as a replacement or stand-in, and it's been marketed on a very small scale as Appalachian allspice. Mm. I'm not really certain about that story because if you compare allspice side by side with spice bush, they they really don't have many similarities. Allspice is very earthy and spice bush has a lot of top citrusy notes. It's really punchy and it's nothing like those gingerbread spices that we mm. think of. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that was challenging in researching this book and continues to be very exciting and challenging is finding some of the original uses for these fruits, either with white settlers who moved in, um, because a lot of this stuff is apocryphal, or with the the Native Americans who were using them in the first place. And oftentimes the challenge with that is that they didn't keep written records or any of the written records that exist are are told by somebody who's probably already biased for getting this secondary information from somebody who's writing things down from a very Western perspective. So mm-hmm. I always try to be very skeptical when, when I find these sources, but you know, they're still, they're, they're still fun to look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before we go deeper into this path, take us back to your earliest influences and this developing a relationship with the place you're in and learning to look and learning to search out foods that would be of interest or expand you as a looker, as a person who lives in a place, or as a chef? Going back before I even thought about food as as much of anything I should be concerned with outside of candy, (laughs) (laughs) when I was a little girl, I played outside all the time. I played on playgrounds. I was a free-range kid running around in the neighborhood with my friends. We had... um, a very sizable yard. So I'd be in the yard and there were uh, woods close to the, to the yard. So I'd spend a lot of time in the woods and, and I'd be there by myself when I was bored. I would go there with friends and we'd play different games. And I didn't really think of the plants as, as nature so much as just whatever happened to be around me at the time. You know, when mm-hmm. I think kids take things on a, on a really wonderful surface level mm-hmm. sometimes. So so I had the good fortune to have a lot of nature surrounding me as I grew up. Um, my parents and both sets of my grandparents were also avid gardeners. And once again, I was never really very concerned about the particulars of that. It's just something that was in in the background. So I grew up thinking that gardening is just naturally what, what you do. Um, But I never really cared too much about the specifics of plants or nature. So when it all started to come together is when I got older and moved away to to California. I lived in the Bay Area and I walked around a lot and there are just so many wonderful ornamental fruit trees that people grow in their yards. And 
as I walked past these houses on my daily journeys to work and to the grocery store and things like that, I would just notice the plants over and over and over again when you haven't ever seen a citrus tree growing, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. you don't in Ohio, <laughs> to just see it in a yard is amazing. So you you notice it every time. And I, I started to think of these plants almost like my, my friends or my companions. Like mm-hmm. you walk by a neighbor and you wave at the neighbor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I sometimes would take some of this fruit, um, but most often I noticed it. And another thing that definitely happened a little bit differently in a lot of California is um, people will have these bumper crops from their ornamental fruit trees in their yard. Sometimes they're you know, trees they planted themselves, and sometimes they're trees they inherited. Let's say you buy a house and you move into it. It has persimmon trees. And then right. Every... Um, Every fall, you get those those bags of persimmons. What are you going to do with all of them? So you take them to work and share them with people. And I started getting a lot of fruit that way. So the chef in me was really intrigued with this fruit that hadn't come from a grocery store. Um, you don't really see persimmons that often at the grocery store in Ohio anyway. So so it was all quite new to me. And I, 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 got, I just it just revved me up so much. Um, so, so the idea that, that food can grow anywhere, not even in a garden, um, I also like free things too. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really satisfied that, that quest for, for free things and to, to just utilize as much as I could. Right. Um, I tend to be really inspired by things that land upon me as opposed to making a grocery list, let's say. All those things came together into into what I would call my my foraging practice, and I just I just fell in love with plants. Yeah. Well, and so how long were you in California, and then what took you back to Ohio? I was in California for seven years. I moved there after graduating from cooking school. I was I had this concept that I'd move to Sonoma County and become a wine writer and. I ended up working in libraries and being a pop music critic, <laughs> uh, which was which was great. Yeah, and and then after seven years, it, it's I decided it was time to leave because my time there had been so wonderful, and I just didn't want to become indifferent about it. I know that sounds strange, but it was a great time in my life in my twenties, and and I just felt like. I needed to be somewhere else to give me some different energy to, to move forward. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. Um, and strangely enough, the, this gravitational pull was leading me back to my hometown in Southeast Ohio, which I, I never, ever, ever in my life <laughs> imagined wanting to to move back to and and live in. I loved growing up there, but my idea of myself was a person who would move away and never come back. And um, that's not what happened. Well, and it's just, it's it's greatly interesting to me how you were in California. And it is, you write somewhere in the book that in California, fruit just happens. And it's so true. I grew up in Colorado with a cold winter at 8,000 feet, and I moved to California 10 years ago. And that fall winter, spring, summer progression of having some 
fruit in season at almost every moment is really pretty magical. And it does teach you to see food all around you all the time. Uh, How did that translate once you got back home to Ohio where you do have this very cold winter and kind of a, a long winter dormancy? How did your California foraging epiphanies kind of inform your Ohio foraging practice going forward? I think having grown up in a place that has more distinct seasons was a really natural transition for me to go back to. That Mm -hmm. was probably something that I was really yearning for and noticing the the patterns that happen with plants throughout the seasons um, becomes a little bit more distinct just because of the weather factors Mm -hmm. in a a place like Ohio. So I fell back into that pretty naturally. It, 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 It just felt right. Um, But I also brought back with me this idea of looking at things in a new way. So I wasn't a kid. I wasn't taking things for granted the same way. And I started appreciating what I had always thought of as an unexceptional place, the place where I grew up. I started appreciating it as a place that is exceptional and always has new things to offer. So Mm -hmm. It changed the way not just how I think about where I live, but any place I might happen to be. If you open your eyes and (laughs) your inner eye to sound a little bit, um, (laughs) I don't know, flaky about it. Um, But if, (laughs) if you just open yourself up, you can notice things that you would never notice before and your life can be so much richer we have this idea that things always have to be grand and magnificent to be new but things can also be small and and still significant you can experience new things every single day just just by going outside yeah so you you get back to ohio And at what point, and maybe this happened in California, but at what point did your daily walks that became foraging expeditions, both for looking and for gathering, when did it become a sort of practice to you? Because you definitely speak about this as a a spiritual and intellectual and aesthetic practice as much as a pragmatic task of, I think I'll go get plums today. It definitely fell into place in in more of a concrete way when we moved back here. Mm -hmm. By then I had a family, a husband and a dog. And I can actually read an excerpt, a a short excerpt from my book, if you'd like me to do that. That would be great. um, Yeah. Okay. So when we moved back here to Ohio, it was pretty rough at first. We were living with my parents, which is very generous of them, but still we were living with my parents and it was hard to find jobs. Um, The transition was just really difficult and I was feeling really awful about it because of course it was my idea to move back here. Um, So we're picking up there with this excerpt. To work through the stress I'd created for us, I took to the woods and did some heavy-duty forest bathing. 
I wasn't even looking for pawpaws when I found my first. Um, I'm taking a break from reading now to let you know that pawpaws are the largest fruit native to North America. And as it turns out, they grow in Ohio, which I hadn't even known prior to um, growing up there. So I was walking on a trail in the woods and a pawpaw lay splayed open smack in the middle of the path in front of me, displaying its saffron-colored guts. I don't believe in fate, but I do believe in the magic of being receptive to the right thing in the right moment. And when I encountered that pawpaw, that was it. I went back and looked for more. They smelled and tasted like nothing I'd ever encountered in Ohio, though they'd been growing there for millennia. I fell for their amazingly tropical flavor in an intensely perfumed flesh. I started hauling them home and have been at it ever since. It's like that pawpaw found me and not vice versa. I just became obsessed with pawpaws and the the quest for for that feeling of discovery mm-hmm. um, that that I experienced when when I saw that first one is what kept me going back for more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the the trail where I found that is was very close to where my daughter went to preschool, and it was this handy thing where I could drop her off and then go have some me time by walking on the trail. And, and that investment of just being there for half an hour, it just made our whole lives so much smoother. You know, a lot of us don't take the time to just be ourselves and to have time to think and to move and, and not really have an agenda. And, and by having, you know, it shouldn't even be a luxury, but I definitely appreciate that, that for a lot of people it is. And for me to have that, I think it really helped us establish ourselves here and just just be functional. Sarah Burr is the author of The Fruit Forager's Companion, ferments, desserts, main dishes, and more from your neighborhood and beyond. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about how and why she got started down this particular path. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Okay, so thinking out loud here, I definitely want to unpack this idea of fruit being a currency of memory. I love this concept, and I know just what Sarah means when she says it. I feel this way about plants and gardens in general, the memories held in specific shades of colors, in certain scents, like the Daphne odora blooming in my front garden right now. It must be built into our DNA, the way we have co-evolved with these plants over generations through cultures. So when Sarah says this of fruit, I can easily conjure up memories of being very young with my family driving in a beat-up old green Jeep Cherokee from where we lived on the eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado to the western slope to a town named Paonia, historic homelands of the Parianush and the Tabawash peoples, where my father had done research for his PhD in wildlife biology, and my parents had fallen in love with the scrubby, dry landscape of an area famous in those parts for its fruit. 
apricots and cherries, apples and pears. From the time I was about five until I was about 13 or 14, we would travel the mountain pass from Lookout Mountain, Colorado to Paonia and a tiny two-room log cabin there. If it was summer or fall, the return drive to so-called real life involved the Jeep being full of orchard boxes of whatever fruit was in season at that time from the Pavka's orchard. And we three girls were in the back seat, always eating too much of the fruit on the long drive home. Certainly, various fruits have strong regional memory associations as well, especially native fruits, such as the pawpaw Sarah mentions. The pawpaw, Asimina triloba, is a deciduous understory tree native to almost all of eastern North America. For more on its care and cultivation, make sure to see this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com. Do particular fruits hold memory for you? Are there native fruits particularly associated with your region? I clearly remember the first time I prematurely tasted a native persimmon when we lived for a brief time in southern Illinois. Ooh, don't do it. Unripe persimmon is not a fun experience. For me here, now, in interior northern California, historic homeland of the Machupta, my mind swings to wild grapes, the berries of manzanita, and of mahonia and ribes, and of course, the various distinct acorns of our native oaks. While we do have a native blackberry, fall here is heavy with the fruits of the invasive Himalayan blackberry. It seems our duty to eat as many as we can, right? I'd love to hear your fruit memories, the sweet and the sour ones. Send me an email or post a comment on Cultivating Places episode post this week on Instagram or Facebook. I'll look forward to your notes and your memories. Now back to our fruitful conversation with Sarah Burr. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Sarah Burr has been a fruit forager for most of her adult life, from persimmons in California to the pawpaw fruit that helped her to develop a deeper relationship with her own childhood home in southeastern Ohio as an adult. She says, I don't believe in fate, but I do believe in the magic of being receptive to the right thing in the right moment. And when I encountered that pawpaw in that moment, that was it. We're back after a break to hear more about her journey. Welcome back. It shouldn't be a luxury. You're right. Like, we can all stop for a few minutes no matter what and and take a little time like that. But it does feel so luxurious when we do it. And... Yeah, it's worth worth every second. So what led you to wanting to write a book about this and the practice? And then I'm going to ask you a little bit more about fruit. But start with what, what, what was the inspiration for putting this together as a book? You're a chef. You've written other books, I believe. You, you write regularly. Why this book? I needed it and it didn't exist. I was yeah. finding myself with all of these strange fruits and I didn't know what to do with them. So I would research them. You know, that's the library person in me. 
And the sources that I found, you know, um, print resources, online resources, or just asking people, a lot of them focused on the safety of the plant or its leaf arrangements. You know, it was all very, very dry material that's necessary. I mean, it's important to identify things. But especially with, with plant ID guides and foraging guides, it would talk about medicinal applications and what colors the flowers are and what types of petals they had. And, and I wanted pictures and recipes and fun information and cultural context. I wanted to know when to harvest things and how to best preserve them. I wanted some really nitty-gritty information. And I wanted it all in one place. So I realized pretty quickly, well, I'm going to have to do this myself. Um, and since I love making things and, and solving problems, that was that, um, <laughs> I was I was in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that I found really compelling was that you focus very specifically on fruit in this book. And you acknowledge that there are some other very good resources out there on brewing wild-crafted beer or, you know, other kinds of foraging, but that you really wanted to focus on fruit. Describe this process and some of the, some of the whys behind it for listeners. I wanted to write a book I was into, and I'm into fruit. Of, of all the things you can forage for, I forage for fruit, and it's because it's sweet and delicious and sexy and tactile and, and fertile. There's just something about it that really has a deeper story than greens or mushrooms, at least, at least to me. Mm-hmm. I... I think fruit is a currency of memory. Yeah. There are fruits maybe you identified with when you were a kid. Um, a friend of mine had mangoes for the first time when her parents, who lived in Canada, had them shipped over at, at a great expense. And they were originally from somewhere else in the world, her parents, where where they could have mangoes all the time. And she just remembers her parents eating these mangoes and and weeping Mm. because it's so deeply connected them with another time in their life. I think there's just something really primal about the fruits that you eat when you're a young person. Almost like when I had that pawpaw, it connected me with something I didn't even know was part of me, but, but it turns out it was, I just, I just love what fruit means on a on a botanical level but also also on a cultural level um and i like to eat it so it it just (laughs) just hits all those pleasure receptors right there and you mentioned this in the book but uh there is also this is the fruit's job its job is to attract something someone uh, be it human or non-human to eat it and help disperse its seeds and help it reproduce and that the fruit are some of the wackiest, you used that word and I just loved it, I smiled when I read it, some of the wackiest shapes and colors and forms that plants offer out to the world around them. And I, I, I really responded to that. And 
it kind of ties into your pawpaw story in that there are certain fruits that if you bring them up in in a specific crowd or with people, if they have a childhood memory of it, it's so it's visceral resonance for them. Yes, I I just love that shared energy when when it happens that I'm talking with someone and we we connect over a fruit. You just know you're with your people. Yeah. <laughs> when when that happens, but it is amazing how when you respond to a fruit, you're just doing what's natural. Our human impulse is to to innovate and to always be coming up with new approaches for things. But ironically, that also is what makes us less human and less responsive to to what is ingrained in us as as animals, let's say. So I think that animalistic attraction to, to fruit, just because of its shape and color and smell and and wackiness um is a it's a wonderful way to just be be an animal again and and that's really very gratifying i mean in a strange way being being an animal is what makes us human um and we're so distanced from that just by the way our lives are so it's it's very grounding to to indulge in a little bit of it i want to run through a couple of your kind of you know foraging rules, ethics, caveats uh, quickly, and then get into how how you cover each of the fruits and, and maybe go through a couple of your favorite uh, or maybe most surprising of the, the recipes or approaches to them. So so let's start with your kind of rules of engagement for this, this kind of enjoyment. Yes. So first of all, you should be foraging things where it's legal and it's pretty easy to figure that out. Is it private property? Do you have permission from the landowner? If you're on public property, is it legal to forage there? Usually you can solve these problems by looking online or picking up the phone or just asking a person. Mm -hmm. I'm actually quite shy and this impulse I have to forage has led me to just knock on people's doors and ask them if it's okay for me to pick their quince. And usually we'll have a short, pleasant conversation. Oftentimes they will not even know what the tree I'm referring to (laughs) in their yard is. (laughs) Um, And then I, then I get the fruit off their hands for them. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful transaction. Um, So, so permission is, is very important. Also, ethics. Um, Is it the right thing to harvest this fruit, even if you do have permission? Is it something that doesn't grow very easily? If I am harvesting sumac, is it going to make the view less pleasant for somebody? Um, So I try to think about if taking the fruit makes me a jerk or not. That's another really basic, pretty easy to figure out thing. Right. And, you know, if the answer is maybe, then it probably should be no. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just forage with your eyes in that case. Yeah. Another thing is, um, obviously, is it safe to eat? Are you positive that plant is what it is? And there are lots of ways to identify plants now. If you walk around with your smartphone, you can take a picture of it. There are apps, but I encourage people, um, foraging apps, actually, if you can believe it, you can take a picture of the plant and it goes up on this thing and it can tell you what it is perhaps. But 
I also really like paper resources. If you have anyone in your community who you respect as a forager, you can text them the photo. That's actually a, a great thing to do. Um, so just pull from the great resources in your community who you trust. I don't always trust social media. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, yes. People people will often misidentify plants meaning to be helpful. So you want to make certain that the plant is edible and safe. Safe also means that it doesn't have any chemical contamination. So think about if it's a roadside out in the country, would they have been spraying for vector control? Is it something that may have a lot of pesticides on it? Yeah. Um, can you hurt yourself trying to get at this thing? I mean, this this sounds like it should just be obvious, but every now and then I'll reach really high and climb things trying to get to something that that's just a fruit. You know, if I fall, I'm alone in the woods. How am I going to get back if I have a twisted ankle? So also just making good decisions about your own safety. Yeah. Those are Those are the big ones. Sarah Burr is a chef writer and food forager joining us today from her home in southeastern Ohio, where she grounds herself in the seasons and her place by engaging with the fruits to be foraged in any season. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's me, Jennifer. Towards the end of our conversation, Sarah talks about the importance to her of not only doing this thing she loves, foraging, cooking with, and learning about fruits, but also being in community with others who share this passion, passing her own knowledge forward and stewarding and helping to preserve the knowledge of those before her, such as the local wild food woman, Edeline Wood, She's the long-running president of the Wild Foods Association. This idea about being in community with people who share these passions and hold this knowledge harkens back to some of the inspiration behind Megan and Rupert and the Turning Into Flowers episode from two weeks ago, and from Linnea Hansen's work to form better and more complete networks of communication among professional botanists at work in Northern California that we heard from last week. This desire to form pathways for more and more complete shared knowledge among plants people is certainly a strong component to the mission of Cultivating Place, a mission which I reaffirmed in this month's A View From Here newsletter. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, it's up now at cultivatingplace.com. If you're subscribed, it should have arrived in your email inbox last week. This month, I shared some of your garden resolutions and some of the series and topic requests you made for the coming year on Cultivating Place. So look forward to a series on permaculture, an episode on fire recovery and landscaping for fire safety, another series on good native plant endeavors around the country, including an episode on the Penstemon Society, a favorite genus in the garden and on the trail and of course, many more episodes. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. I love hearing your feedback and your requests for even more cultural and natural history shared here. Now back to the fruit foraging story of Sarah Burr. 
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back with Sarah Burr, author of The Fruit Forager's Companion, ferments, desserts, main dishes, and more from your neighborhood and beyond, available now from Chelsea Green. Welcome back. And I, I really appreciate all of those, especially the the ethics one about considering, you know, what you pick before you pick it. That's definitely a, a big deal here in California, uh, especially among our native plants and culturally significant ones. But also the final one about keep your eyes open to what position this fruit or plant might be in and if it has been uh, subject to sprays, I think is is really important because there are some pretty yucky sprays that people put on roadsides uh, specifically. So now we're done with that more difficult part of the conversation, the like all the the warnings that come on. Um, <laughs> let's get into some of the fun part. So I love the way you have organized this by fruit so that you can go right to plums or apples or quince and find what you are suggesting and how you are handling them. How did you decide to do it this way and then get into some of the some of the fun recipes that you were excited to share with people? Sure. Um, you know, as a library person, I just think in alphabetical order. So <laughs> the fruits are <laughs> the fruits are organized by alphabetical order. That way if you know how to read, you know the alphabet and you can think plums, that's gonna be in the peas, and you don't have to know what family it's in or what season you harvest them in. You, you learn that once you find plums in, in there, right? Mm-hmm. You just look for pea. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess you could say I, I wrote this for um, sort of a plant lay person, which I still think of myself as. You know, people build them as ex build themselves as experts all the time. And I like to call myself a plant enthusiast because to be an expert, it takes a lifetime. And, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still getting into this. So that's how I organized it. And I call this a foraging guide with recipes. Each section um, in the book about the different fruits tells you where it's going to grow in North America, what it looks like when it's ripe, what it looks like before the fruit's even on there. I was very careful about sourcing good photos to help you identify things, but Mm -hmm. also having good descriptors in the text as well. And also what to, how to harvest this stuff and what to do once you have it. So not only are there recipes, but I try to give people strategies. If you have a bumper crop of apples, here are some low energy ways you can preserve those. And if you have a very small harvest of something, what's a way that you can use that so you'd feel like you haven't wasted it because every now and then that that happens, right? You have a year and maybe the service berries aren't very plentiful and you don't want to waste them because they're just so wonderful and precious. So um, how can you how can you best display your efforts? Mm-hmm. When it comes to recipes, were there uh, were there sort of oldies but goodies that you put in here for people? And were there some surprise recipes that you experimented with and then were excited to share? Yes. So um, going back to the spice bush that we were talking about earlier, um, one of the recipes I have in there is for a spice bush steak rub. I don't eat meats that often, but I love spice bush with meats. It just really cuts through fatty, rich meats like duck or lamb or or a good steak. 
So I have a rub with white pepper and black pepper and dried sumac berries and and the spice bush and oh my gosh it's just it's just really great it's nice with with strong forceful meats because it's a it's a strong forceful rub and so I was pretty happy about that because it helped me um, approach spice bush from a different direction than what a lot of people do which is to use it to use it like you would use cinnamon and I just mm-hmm. don't think that's the best way to use it so so that's one that is very different from um, I would say the wild foods canon (laughs) of recipes. And then there are a lot of oldies, but goodies. One of the ones that's very much on my mind right now is poached quince because I have been eating that for breakfast with yogurt this last week. The first time I had quince, I was living in California. I bought some at a farmer's market and then I had located a couple trees around some different neighborhoods where I lived. And I I was just so intoxicated with them. I mean, even just the, the smell of them, so floral. Um, they are an orchard fruit. They look like really knobby pears. You can't just pick them off the tree and, and eat them. You need to cook them. They're very <laughs> firm and very, very tannic. Um, they also don't look like something you just normally eat because we're not used to seeing them. But once you cook them, their flesh, it... It stays firm. They're not mushy like applesauce or, or even poached pears. They stay nice and firm, but it's still tender. And they go through this wonderful color change. They turn this rosy color when you cook them for a long time. And they just have this wonderful floral essence to them. I really like them with honey and um, and citrus zest and vanilla. Mm. And that's what I put in my poaching liquid. And poaching quince is really my favorite way to eat it. So I haven't found any quince trees anywhere around here. I'm certain somebody has some, um, but I haven't found any. But I did see some at the grocery store the other day. So I, I bought them and I had a little little memory trip thinking about the <laughs> the happy times in different falls and places where I've lived where I would go and, and – uh, <laughs> Yeah. and kind of sneak off away with some quince. This is before I, I overcame my shyness of knocking on doors. I, I would uh, habitually steal quince from neighbors' yards. <laughs> well, and I was going to say when you described it earlier uh, in terms of asking people if you could have one and them not even being sure what, what you were talking about because it is an unlikely-looking fruit and it is a bit ugly. So they probably didn't know it. Was, many people wouldn't know it was edible if they didn't plant it purposefully. And it's one of those scrubby shrubs that looks absolutely gorgeous for about five minutes in early spring when it has that flush of precocious blooms before it leaves out. And it's magical in that one brief moment. And then you have to wait quite a long time for this very weird fruit. But as you say, if you know what to do with it, it's really delicious. Yes, yes. And Jennifer, I'm curious, are you talking about flowering quince or japonica? Um, the japonica uh, that has the, the fruit, but it has those little flowers as well that I quite like. Yes, yes, I do love those. And you know what's interesting? So that is not quite the same as the quince that I'm talking about, which is not a shrub. It's a tree, um, oh. although the fruits you can treat the same way. Yes. Okay. So that's that's the one I'm talking about. So that's great. 
That's... One of the things I, I love so much and then sometimes frustrated with um, as far as fruits go is they share a lot of the same names and they have these funky regional names and it just makes things a little bit confusing. So I had to have some sidebars with, with fruits I called honorable mention fruits and japonica quinces were one of them. So there's a little sidebar in the quince section that talks about uh, flowering quince or japonica quince and how it's a different plant, but they're, they're similar and you can treat them in, in the same ways. This interaction that we just had gets to some of that moment of discovery of, oh, wait, that's this, but it's also this, and it's not exactly that. And and that is part of what lights us up, right? Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. You know, I'm never going to get tired of doing this. And right. I would be so sad if there were a thing I loved that I knew everything about. That would just be the worst thing in the world for me. And if you love plants, there's there's – a hundred new things to learn every single day. I mean, what a great thought. Yeah, yeah. It's to, it's true. I, I feel this in the garden all the time, but I then when I come across somebody's different, slightly different perspective or lens on it, like yours with the foraging fruit and, and using this not only as this expansion of what you eat and the flavors that you appreciate and share with others, but also as this philosophical approach to life. I can't get enough of that either. Now that we're talking about this part of what you do and and some of these joys that are sometimes surprising but almost always there, get to and, – and, and there are several instances in, in the introduction and so you may want to read an excerpt again. But you talk about this making you a better person you talk about it not necessarily saving the world, but but improving your connection to place. Can you share an anecdote or two beyond the original pawpaw that pulled you in that uh, that sort of captures your joy, your ongoing joy in this work and sharing it with others? Sure, I'm going to tell you a story um, that happened recently, and it's about community. So my foraging practice, and you know, for a lot of people who garden too, what you do is a solitary pursuit, and it's a good time to just work through some things in your head. I think it's important to have that alone time, but... It's also something that can bring you together and you have to sort of push yourself outside of your, your regular sphere to make that happen. Uh, a couple years ago, a reporter told me that I should connect with a woman named Edlyn Wood. She lives across the river in West Virginia, like 20 minutes away. She's 97 years old and she is a wild foods expert and she's been studying applications of wild foods and, and their history in this region for years and years. But the thing that she really has a knack for is building community. So she began a number of wild foods dinners, not just in West Virginia, but also some in North Carolina. She went through a period where she sent letters to different states seeking wild food recipes um, for foods from, from those states, and then mm -hmm. she compiled them into this, this binder. 
she is a hub of this community that she's built. And I realized it's so important to have people like that. And we might not all be that person, but you can certainly be one of the spokes. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so just doing the thing, it can be an end in itself, but if you, if you really want the whole picture, you need to be connecting with other people about it too, because that's when everything sort of seems to fit together in this puzzle piece. And that's when you learn and that's when you, you really experience so much of that joy by, by sharing and allowing other people to share with you. Um, so last week, this woman, Edelyn Wood hosted, uh, another forger fellow and, and I at her house and we had tea and we just chatted about things and, I really want to spend a lot more time with her because she has so much to offer and I feel like that's something that that should be my responsibility to help disperse to to other people. So I'm always trying to think about how I can be be the hub mm-hmm. <laughs> or be the spoke and and just put myself into places where I'm going to be enriching other people's lives, but also being enriched as well. You know, that's, that's the other really important piece to all of this. And we live lives where it's so easy to just have it be about us all day long. If you look on your social media accounts, everything there is built to appeal to you because of an algorithm. And that's so alluring, but you know, you go out into the world and, and it's just, it's just the world. And you need to be engaged with it on that level and not just this tiny little screen. And there's so much that can appeal to you in, in the world as it already is, yeah. too. Um, and and that can include real people. So <laughs> I try to I try to remind myself of that, too, and, and have my world be about the larger world around me and not just these these constructs through this sort of uh, I mean, I've. I've met some wonderful people through social media, so I don't want to poo-poo that. But I always have to remind myself that it's okay for things to just to just be on a local, real-time level too. Mm-hmm. And I think that also captures so nicely this concept of of you as a food librarian. That food, especially this kind of fruit, that you are are talking about and writing about and experimenting with and engaging with, it is, there are whole cultural historical narratives held in this fruit and how people have engaged with it since people and fruit met, you know, whatever, however many, many, many years ago. And that each one of those people and those fruit stories are part of who we are. Yes, yes. I was thinking about how I, when I was writing as a pop music critic, what I concerned myself with wasn't so much what is this song, but what does it mean to us once it's out in the world? And it occurred to me that that's my approach to to writing about fruit as well. So I don't think there's a huge future for me as a as a fruit critic, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is that is really how I, I like to think about fruit. So many of them have stories that go back 
thousands and thousands of years. There's just something elemental about them. Even if you don't know those stories, you just kind of associate them with, with the same things. But when you, when you do know their backstories, it just adds to, to the richness of it. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the book, the recipes, your, your practice in this foraging fruit life, Sarah? The one thing I would like to say is that if you are able to, to get outside, even if you're just walking to your mailbox, there are still things that you can notice and, and that change throughout time and that have something to tell you and something to offer you. So I hope everyone is able to take advantage of, of that aspect of, of their life and to know that when you open your door, there's, there's always something out there for you. So, so go and find it. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you. Jennifer, thank you. This has been a delightful conversation, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy right now. Sarah Burr is a fruit forager and food librarian in southeastern Ohio. Her new book, The Fruit Forager's Companion, Ferments, Desserts, Main Dishes, and More, From Your Neighborhood and Beyond, walks us through her foraging practice, how she sees the world, and how to make the most, edibly and philosophically, of where you are and what fruits might be in season right now. Her book is available from Chelsea Green. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos on Sarah's work on the care and cultivation of pawpaws and more, visit this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you to everyone who makes Cultivating Place possible. You listeners, you donors, and you supporters. We couldn't do this without you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.